Hey everybody, the August 2021 Roundup is brought to you by Fun Again Games. And welcome back everybody, it is time for another countdown of the best games my wife Jen and I played over the preceding four weeks. Got a whole bunch to go through and really not much else to talk about other than can I just take a second to say how happy I am uh, with the R&R show, the new weekly live uh, program that myself and Ruel Gaviola have been putting on. By the time you see this roundup, I think we will have done six episodes, and I think we're just getting better episode after episode. Certainly the show is gaining popularity. Maybe that's because every episode we give away another great game. We've given away a lot of really good stuff so far. And if you haven't caught it yet... Uh, you can uh, find it at rnr.rado.com. I made a little shortcut for it. RNR, that's for Rado and Ruel. RNR, Romeo, November Romeo, dot rado, dot com. Uh, every Wednesday at 12 noon West Coast time. What is that? I think that's 8 p.m. GMT or is that 7 DM GMT. There are online time calculators that will figure that out for you, folks. Uh, you can catch us talking to you about all kinds of really great games and having a great time, and hopefully everybody has a good time watching. Okay, so with that out of the way, uh, it is time to start counting down. And for starters, we are going to hear what Shay uh, Parker uh, of RTFM played over the last few weeks. And then we'll come back to me and I'll start talking about all the stuff Jen and I have done. So without further ado, Shay, take it away. Hey folks, so I covered six games this month, which is a pretty busy month for me. Don't worry about the 37 games that Rado's going to cover or whatever. Um, so uh, I am going to talk about them, but first I want to say that I really enjoyed pretty much every game that I played, and uh, I think that all of them are worth giving a shot, but as with all things, we must rank them. So let's start off with number six, Super Truffle Pigs. Uh, this was a paid Kickstarter preview, um, and I uh, think that this is an excellent uh, gateway game for programming. Games. Um, in this game, you are playing as a team of truffle pigs. You're obviously going around the woods trying to get truffles. You don't know what they're worth uh, exactly, but when you pick them up, you find out. In the meantime, there are a bunch of wolves that are coming around and they're trying to take you out. And if you lose one of your uh, pigs, that's fine. You've still got another one, although it is out of the map. But if you lose the other one, that's when things get a little tricky. You can bring them back, but it's expensive to do so. You have to lose some of your truffles. And that makes it a bit of a tense puzzle. But what I think is fascinating about the game is that it is a pretty good and interesting introduction to gate or into programming games. Because while you are moving your pigs as normal, the wolves movement is determined by direction cards that each player will play throughout the course of the round. So you have an idea of where the, the wolves are gonna go, but you aren't necessarily sure of anything really. So you can try and keep yourself safe. Sometimes you can be sure of it, but most of the time, they're going to be a little bit unpredictable. However, you have extra cards that you can help to keep you safe or to do any extra, like that's where the super part of Super Trouble Pigs comes in. There are superpowers that your pigs can adopt. Sometimes they'll knock out wolves. Sometimes they'll move you really far or move truffles around, things like that, all just to keep it interesting. Now, I think this is a great introduction to programming games, and it provides an interesting twist on them, though it is geared a little bit more towards a family uh, you know, family weight audience and stuff. So that's, that's why it's on the lower end of my list. But I do think it's really interesting. All right, moving on to number five, we have Wild Serengeti. This is another Kickstarter paid preview. And this is all about 
being a nature photographer or wildlife documentarian in the Serengeti. And so you've got this board and you've got tons of these animal figures which make a great table presence. And the game is all about arranging these animals in such a way that you can fill out scenes. You've got a bunch of cards and these cards will determine the scenes that you are trying to uh, arrange them in as soon as you get them in either like the right order or all the appropriate animals on the right you know biome areas of the map. Or uh, lastly, you can have animals surrounding a specific type of animal. All those three different kinds of scenes you will have cards for. And once those are completed on your turn, you can finish off one of those scenes. You can score a little bit of uh, points or it'll get you other different kinds of symbols. And you can use those as a set collection kind of mechanic. And all, you know, throughout the game, obviously you're trying to get points and trying to... um, have a good time, but it's it's really difficult to get these animals in exactly the right way, uh, the right order, the right, you know, arrangement on the board. So you have little tokens that make things easier. Now, I love the puzzling aspect of this. You definitely have to think through your turn because you can usually try and figure out a way to get like one thing to happen. But the trick is trying to uh, fulfill multiple scenes at the same time. That is really exciting and it can be, you know, really valuable payoff but it is absolutely a difficult thing to do because it requires a lot of spatial awareness. So I don't know if this game is going to be for everyone because it is a bit of a brain burner, but if you like a really like chunky puzzle, a uh, visual spatial awareness kind of puzzle, then definitely check out Wild Serengeti. All right, number four, I have Mythic Mischief. Now this, this is uh, also a paid preview. This one's going on GameFound though. And this is essentially, it is a what do you call it? Abstract strategy game. But, and I should say, abstract strategy games, not usually my bag. I I like a game with a really good story, something really strong thematic connection, which is actually why I really like Mythic Mischief. It has done, the presentation of this game has done a lot towards getting me interested, whereas otherwise, abstract strategy, like I said, not usually what I'm going for. But in Mythic Mischief, you've got your group, it's kind of a click, of your your mythics, which are like different you know, horror movie monster kinds of creatures that are all in uh, mythic manner, the you know mythological high school that this game is set in. So you've got groups like the wizards or uh, the Frankenstein's monsters, witches, zombies, and they all have their own clique. So the wizards are these little like kind of nerdy little goobers. Um, they're my favorite, I should say. Um, we've got these zombies who are like the skateboard kids. I think there's, uh, in one of the expansions, there's the trolls who are like theater nerds. And what makes each of these clicks interesting is that each of them has an asymmetrical player power, or two actually. Every group has two of the same power, which is just moving and pulling the Tome Keeper, which is this big menacing black figure that moves around the board. You're trying to avoid him. And everyone else, or everyone also has a power that allows you to move opponents and a power that allows you to move bookshelves, which are the walls that create the, the maze of the board. Now, the Tome Keeper is going to go in kind of a set path, but you can move the you know dimensions of the board around so you can change that path a little bit. And the goal is to get the Oath Keeper to uh, capture your opponents and get you some points. What I really like about this game, one, like I said, it has a really strong thematic connection. The artwork is adorable. It's very, uh, very cool, very fun to uh, to look at and to play. And also, the different styles, uh, the different you know themes and and um, 
cliques that the, the mythics are based on, they really do feel connected to the powers that they have. Like the, the monsters are very aggressive. They can throw you over their shoulder. They can just knock the bookshelves aside. I think that's really cool. And, but on top of that, uh, the, the gameplay is, is fun and interesting. It's got a cool mechanic to it. It runs pretty quick. And even though it probably could be a very mean game, I never felt like this game was mean. I, because when your players get knocked out, they come right back at the start of their next round. So it doesn't really work out that, you know, you get knocked out and then you feel like you can't play. There's also a blitz mode where you can play it really quickly. I think I like that a little bit better, even though that has like player elimination, but it's over so fast that, you know, it's not like it's a big deal. And um, there's one more thing I wanted to say about it. Uh, if I can remember, maybe I can't, but it's, oh, uh, the, in, the lightweight version of the asymmetrical player powers, I think is a very smart move because it keeps things interesting when you're playing different factions against each other, but it's also very easy to bring to the table. You take, you know, a minute before the game starts to say, okay, my uh, witches can uh, move walls like this, and they can move people around like this, and that's all you need to know, and we're ready to get started. What do yours do? Cool, got it, let's play. So it's really easy to jump in, but at the same time, there's enough intricacy that it's really difficult to master, really a lot to, of strategy to sink your, sink your teeth into. So that's Mythic Mischief. Now, number three, Black Rose Wars Rebirth. This is a big, weird game, and I kind of love it. It's it's very goth-themed, which I mentioned in the final thoughts, kind of spoke to me. Like, I, I wasn't really a goth kid, but who didn't love going to Hot Topic when they were in high school? And so I, I got a lot out of the setting of this game, but also I thought that there were some really fascinating... Uh, interplay between the characters. Now in this game you are playing as this mage uh, who's trying to become the new like head mage of uh, the Black Rose um, order. And you're doing so it's sort of a, a contest. You're, you're getting points in a lot of different ways but you're also kind of going up against the Black Rose Lodge themselves because they need to prove that you're worthy even if you're better than the other players. And you're doing this by casting spells, but the spells that you cast have a really interesting way. So you, first off, every spell that you have is double-sided. So, And when you play it, you are determining whether you're going to play the top side or the bottom side, which work a little bit differently, though usually they're connected. But on top of that, you're playing all of your spells in a planning phase before like the actions. You're playing them all face down. There's one spell that you can use at any time, or any time on your turn, but all the other spells have to be played in order, which means that when you're playing... You uh, you better hope that you have planned out your phase, your, your action phase, in a way that's going to work out for you. Now, it doesn't tend to be too difficult to do this. You usually get something out of whatever you play, but it, it sometimes really depends. Like, it, if you can if you can kind of anticipate what your opponents are going to do, you can lay out your cards in a specific way that's going to make it, make a huge combo out of it. So... I really liked that aspect of things, but on top of that, there's a lot of tug of wars happening. So on the board, there's all these different locations, and you can use the locations for actions, but you're also trying to fill them with instability so that the Black Rose Lodge, which is the you know, place where you're playing, decides to step in and rebuild that room, which one, gives it a completely new power, but two, gives points to whoever had put in the most instability. So... But uh, whoever gets second place gets some points, maybe. Third place maybe gets some points. And there's a lot of things like that where you want to have the most, but you can also get some points from having from participating at all. 
So there's that decision-making process of, do I want to put a lot of effort into making sure this happens and making sure I'm the leader, or do I want to spread out my influence on a lot of different places on the map? So there's a lot of these little tug of, tugs of war, and you got to keep a lot in mind, but there's also plenty of room for good strategy and good tactics uh, at the same time. So I, I really enjoyed Black Rope. Black Rose Wars Rebirth. I will say that it is better at a higher player count than two-player, but um, I think at four-player, it's fantastic. So check out Black Rose Wars Rebirth. And if I didn't say it at the top of it, this was a paid preview. And almost every video that I did this month was paid previews, including the next one, uh, which is my number two, Agamonia. Now, I've been playing a lot of campaign games, and yes, uh, it's a little bit difficult for me to really fall in love with a campaign game because I just don't quite have the time to play them, or to play them as much as I want to. Now, Agamonia, I only got the you know preview version of it, so I got the, basically this, the tutorial and I played through that. But from what I saw, man, I'm interested in this game. This is a campaign RPG, you've seen a lot of them, but what this game does differently is that it really combined the storytelling aspect of an RPG into this RPG in a box. A lot of times those games, the story is something that happens between the missions, and the missions are all combat or stealth or, or you know, whatever the mechanic is. But in Agamonia, everything is story because there are a ton of spots on the map with little letters, and you don't know what they're going to be, but they are going to trigger once you get close to it, close enough, and each spot is a little bit different. So you move into within like two spaces of this thing. Maybe there's a little canyon and you move within two spaces of it and then you draw a card. You don't know what that card's going to be, but on one side of it, it'll say, you hear the sound of uh, uh, thousands of legs and uh, you know that there are spiders all through this canyon. Uh, and then it might say something like, if you get within one space of the canyon, flip it over. So you have an idea of like, okay, if I go within one space of that canyon, spiders are going to flood out and attack me. So I should probably go around it, but if I go around it, that's going to take a lot longer. The storytelling and the gameplay of it are perfectly mixed in a way that most of these RPG in a box games don't really do. So I love that. I love role-playing games, you know, D&D &D and games like that. So I think that when games really embrace that storytelling aspect of it, it absolutely improves the quality and the, the you know, RPG nature of the game. Uh, on top of that, the mechanics of it were also really fun. It has a, a fair bit of dice rolling in it, but there is an aspect of it that I think will appease uh, even the most staunch of uh, RNG haters out there, which is the fact that there are no misses. When you are rolling, well, when you're rolling to do an active skill, the dice that you roll don't have misses. They have a success, they have a double success, they have a success and you get to roll again, and they have a symbol which, depending on what uh, action you're doing or what items you have with you, might give you a really big success. But even if you don't have anything that activates that, you can spend a little bit of stamina, which is like your, your energy, to grant yourself successes in that role. Doesn't mean you're always going to succeed, but it means that you know you're not going to roll all snake eyes on your... Uh, active attempts. Now, when you are getting attacked or when you're, something's happening to you, yes, you can roll blanks, but when you're actively doing something, you know what your minimum is. So that is something that I really liked on top of the whole integration of theme and gameplay, which is something special. So check out Agamonia.
And now, time for my number one game of the month. You may have seen this coming, but of course, it is Oath, Chronicles of Empire and Exile. And to throw a quick plug in there, I do have a tutorial for Oath, so if you want to learn how to play, uh, please go and check that out on my channel, RTFM. Now, talking about Oath, you have to imagine two games, because one, you are playing the game that you're playing right now, which is a kind of an area control game. You've got one player as the chancellor, the other players are exiles. There's different win conditions for each, but uh, for each type. But what you're generally trying to do is control the board or control some aspect of the board. Maybe you want the most, you know, uh, items that show up. Uh, maybe you want to control the most locations. Maybe there are specific banners that you want, something like that. But you've got something in mind. You want to control it. And there's a lot of different ways to do it, mainly because the denizens that are in all the different locations are going to be different every time you play, uh, or at least mostly different because you uh, you know are drawing them out and putting them out on the board, so you don't know exactly what's going to come up. And then when you're done, someone's going to win, obviously, and you're going to pack up the game in a very specific way, uh, because at the end of the game there is what's called the chronicle, and this is how this game introduces its legacy components because this game is basically a legacy game and i think it does legacy games in an excellent way for two reasons one it's quick and easy you do this at the end of the game you kind of just wrap it up you pack up some of the sites with uh with the denizens on them some of them go back in the box and you prep some new ones and some of the cards some of the denizens that you're playing with those go back in the box and you get new ones as well there's like half of the cards in the game start off not in your uh, in your world deck, which is the whole you know deck of cards that you're playing with. So you're going to get some new cards in, and the cards that you are bringing in are determined by the winner's most favorite suit. Um, so that is going to change how games play in the future because each suit is kind of themed. So that is a whole completely new game that you're playing in the next the next time you bring it out. And I really do recommend you play this with the same group of people if you can, or at least mostly the same group of people, because game after game, you are getting so much more out of it because you are keeping all of the grudges and all of the diplomacy that you had in the last game in your mind as you go to the next one, even though a lot of things have changed. And uh, on top of that, you are just, you know, you're keeping a little bit. So every game that you play is going to be a little bit familiar, but it's also going to introduce some new mechanics. So... In that case, I think it's a really good legacy game. But the other way is you can reset it. A lot of times I have heard people complain about like Gloomhaven, they, they might want to reset it. Now I think Gloomhaven is uh, such a big game, you I, I can't imagine people who want to play it twice, but there are people that do. And there are people that are going to want to play Oath multiple times. Well, I mean, obviously you're going to play through it. It's not like there's an ending, you just keep playing. But at some point, you can reset your game if you want to. There's no, uh, nothing stopping you from just keep going, but maybe you've gone really hard on one specific suit and maybe you just want to reset things. So yeah, you can pack it all up, reset it in the same way that it was when you first got it, and then you can start playing. It's really easy to do that. So not only is Oath fun to play in the moment, I think Oath is going to be fun for like play after play after play, and I don't think people are really going to get tired of it that quickly. So uh, that is why Oath is at the top of my list. It is not only it's a fantastic game in a single experience, it is a fantastic legacy game. It's a game that you're going to want to keep coming back to over and over again. So that was uh, my number one, and those are my top six of the month. Thank you all so much for watching through that, but I will send it back to Rado now. Um, bye bye folks. Okay. 
I am sure that was a very good list, although I haven't seen it yet because I'm recording this before Shay has gotten me his little insert. But of the games I know he's played this month, I think the one I enjoyed watching the most was uh, Super Truffle Pigs, actually. Uh, in part because of the accidental super-duper hardcore mode he came up with that I think really elevates the game and makes it a more of a gamer geek hardcore programming experience. Although, of course... Oath looks amazing, and I am very jealous. Someday, I am sure I will get a chance to play that game, although I worry it's a bit too hardcore rock'em sock'em for Care Bears like me and Jen. But anyway, as always, Shay has done a fantastic job. I'm so happy to have him on the channel. But all of that out of the way, it is time to start talking about what Jen and I have played. And as always, I'm going to break this up into two halves. First of all, I'm going to run down from least favorite to most favorite, the new expansions and like reprints. And then after we do that, we get to completely new games. So if you're an athlete, you know, the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Without further ado, let me jump on over to, I believe it's my number three, it's my bottom ranked, although it's still a very good expansion, Fresco, the expansion box. And actually, if my wife were here, if you'd ask her, she would have said this is maybe the best gaming she had of the month. She absolutely loves Fresco. And don't get me wrong, I love it a lot too. It's a wonderful worker placement game all about simultaneous action selection. We figure out where all our workers are going to go and then everybody reveals at the same time and we hope that it's going to work out well. It's a brilliant game all about painting, um, not the Sistine Chapel, but something like that. Collecting paints and um, mixing paints and then painting and just living the life of a Renaissance era artist. And the new expansion box comes with, I believe, six additional modules you can turn on. And they're all cool. They all do really interesting stuff. There's the catacombs that can be explored now that are underneath the uh, the church that we're painting. And Although you have to uh, pay for cartographer's maps to do that. There's the dome, which gives you special in-game objectives. That was probably my favorite of the uh, new elements. There's, uh, oh, we now have to restore the pews, which means we have to collect lumber and do a little carpentry on the side. There are the ladies um, who become new extra worker placement actions we can do. There's a lot of stuff. The guilds, um, the, uh, the, the master guild, where we can convert paints a bit more easily. It was all very, very cool. Why did it come in at the bottom? Well, it's this recurring thing that I've seen with the a lot of the Fresco expansion content that has come out over the years, it really leans into the randomness, to the, surprise, what's it going to be? I mean, surprise, this is the catacomb piece you found. Oh, it wasn't really what you're looking for. Or surprise, you made a pew, but it was the lowest value one, even though you worked really hard to get out there first. I, I, They're all well designed, but they just add this extra level of unpredictability. And... Honestly, I tend to prefer something more that's deterministic. Okay, well, I'm racing after that because I know what I'm going to get. Don't get me wrong. All six expansions were cool. I wouldn't want to mix them all up together like how we played it because it just threw in way too much random. But a little bit thrown in here and there is a nice little uh, a little spice to keep things a bit unpredictable. And like I said, Jen 
absolutely loved them. It was probably her favorite gaming of the month, playing Fresco with the entire expansion box thrown in all at once. Okay, then we go on to the number two expansion of the month, Galaxy Trucker. This is not an expansion. This is a reprint of a game that has been around and very well loved for many years. But the new 2021 edition is interesting in that it's it hasn't changed the core gameplay of Galaxy Trucker at all. It's just repackaged it in, in a uh, in basically a smaller package. I believe is going to be available uh, at a cheaper cost. The tiles have gotten smaller. The gameplay itself has gotten a little streamlined, but not very much. It is still 95% the same Galaxy Trucker you've ever seen. Probably the most notable change is that by default, you do not play through all the different chapters. You just, everybody picks one ship they're going to do, they do it, they go on their Galaxy Truck run, and then you tally up score. Although, there are rules that allow you to play through the traditional, hey, start with a small ship, and then upgrade to a medium ship, and then finally do a big ship, so you can get a big 90-minute long game um, you know as just traditionally now Jen and I we played this with just the uh, with, with the new rules where you say oh well let's just try a standalone run this way or a standalone run that way and it certainly works but I have to admit I kind of missed the uh, the bigger, broader, more epic feel. It's still there. And what's interesting is, probably the most important new thing that comes in the game is, as you play through, if you play the epic full game, which it used to be called the full game, you unlock based on what you focused on, what type of ship you built, what type of adventures you had. You unlock um, special titles that will give you powers for your second ship or you th- your third ship. And those were very, very cool. It's similar to something that's been in some of the old expansions, but it was still new and different, and we really liked those quite a bit. Although we didn't play a full game, we just said, well, hey, let, what would it have been like if we had earned this one? Um, so that's actually really cool. I'm really kind of surprised that they didn't come up with rules to say, oh, look, if I just want to play a little quickie one-off game, which is one ship, how do we get them? You only officially get them if you play all the way through. And that's really kind of... If there's one thing that really surprised me about this, as I understood it, this is a revamping, a retweaking of the game to make it more um, widely accessible. But... I found that they didn't do as much of that as I would have thought. Like one big change, probably the single biggest surprise to me was it used to be that you could only take so much damage or you could take a lot of damage, but you would only lose points up to a certain, I think it was like, I don't know, eight or 10 bucks or something like that. And then if you keep taking damage, you don't keep losing points. Not so anymore. Now, I mean, you could lose 10, 15, 20 bucks if your ship just keeps getting beaten up. And I don't know why that is. I guess it's to make things, again, one less rule that players have to keep track of. But at the same time, it makes the game much more harsh and punishing. And so there were just odd little things like that. Now, as I understand it, there were probably some tweaks to some of the values of the uh, the events that you run across. I didn't actually do an A-B comparison of, well, how has this asteroid changed? Or how has this um, you know, space war changed? But it mostly felt the same as they always have. And we definitely enjoyed it. But um, honestly, it was kind of hard for us to go back because we're used to Galaxy Trucker with a lot of the expansion content, with all the really crazy, far-out, more complex tiles. Going back to just the basics um, was 
it was nice, but we found ourselves really looking forward to getting uh, more stuff. So for us right now, we're going to hold on to our original Galaxy Trucker. Even though, like I said, I do like these new Trucker titles that you can earn. And um, yeah, I mean, maybe somebody, there'll be a promo for that for uh, classic players like us. But overall, I mean, Galaxy Trucker is as good as it's ever been. And I would say it's as polarizing as it's ever been. It's a game people generally tend to love or tend to hate because you do your best to build a ship and then you rip it apart. Yeah, boy. But again, in in an effort to make this game more broadly appealing, I was surprised there weren't. It didn't include rules for turn-based play because the developers have included that kind of stuff for the original game. Is kind of like unofficial semi uh, expansions. You can read about them on Board Game Geek. You know where um oh you you throw away the timer and everybody has more time to think. I would have expected to see a little bit more of that stuff worked in instead of saying just so pure and true to the original uh, Galaxy Trucker experience. And if anything, it's become a bit more hardcore than it ever has been before. So, Galaxy Trucker, still a phenomenal, real-time, um, you know, hair-ripping-out uh, turn-based game, and uh, we still enjoyed it. It came in as number two, the Galaxy Trucker 2021 edition. Okay, but our favorite expansion had to be Roll Camera, the B-movie expansion. And here's the deal, folks. Roll Camera itself, putting aside the expansion, this would have been my num- my personal number one game of the month. It would have been Jen's number two. We both love Roll Camera so much. I'm calling it right now. I don't see there's any way Roll Camera doesn't make it into my top ten games of the year for 2021, now that I finally got my hands on a final copy of it. And let me... um further uh, express just how excited I am having gotten to play the uh, B-movie expansion that's on Kickstarter. Oh my gosh, this just takes it even further. There's some expansions out there that just say, hey, hey look, here's a bunch more cards. I mean, just, just more of what you already have. And certainly B-movie expansion has a lot of that. It throws in new ideas, new problems, new scenes, uh, you know, all of that stuff. It also throws in a completely new type of card equipment, which is an extra one-time use worker placement space that is fantastic. We really love the equipment element of the game. But um, the most important thing it adds is this entirely new element, a new type of script card. In the original role play, we're cooperatively trying to make the best movies we can and we have to hit certain we don't have to but we're trying to hit certain script requirements so we can up the quality of our film now there are new script requirements genre requirements that if we don't hit them the film fails Um, if it's a sci-fi film it has to have so many sci-fi genre tokens on it if it's a horror movie it has to have so many horror and then it was interesting there were um, some scripts that like mixed horror and sci-fi or fantasy and crime or stuff like that so I mean there's a lot of really interesting stuff to do and this adds an extra level of tension and challenge to an already brilliant game because in addition to everything else we're trying to do we're trying to make sure we hit these particular genre um, landmarks or else the movie will fail so to do this well a whole bunch of new types of cards that um, reflect and manipulate genre in scenes are have been introduced also two completely new worker placement spots are added to the board and so we can um, you know manipulate genre as well and this extra thing It's too early for me to say, because I've only played a prototype. But honestly, B-Movie Expansion took um, a roll camera so far. I mean, it bumped it so high up my rankings list. I mean, with the B-Movie Expansion, prototype I played, 
Roll Camera is now my 25 favorite greatest games of all time. In part because I just love it so much. I love cooperative games, I love dice worker placement, and I love the movies and the idea of making movies. So it's like this was made for me, but it's not just me. Jen has no deep abiding love for the behind the scenes of movie magic, and she loved it too. We both think this game is fantastic, and the B-movie expansion, which um, hasn't actually launched yet. It'll be going live on Kickstarter, I think, in October. I had to film this really early uh, to, to get out so I could move the expansion content on to another uh, publisher uh, or another board game reviewer to cover it. And in fact, ultimately, um, when it goes live in October, you'll be seeing Ruel, my R&R partner, covering it live. So I'm excited to see that too. But anyway, by far, my number one gaming experience of the month and my number one expansion were both Roll Camera, the B-movie expansion, and really just about the best gaming experience I've had so far of the entire year is Roll Camera. Amazing game. Cannot recommend it enough. Um, okay, folks. Uh, you may have noticed, actually, at the beginning of this episode, there's an opportunity, uh, if you watch the first five seconds, to pick up a copy of Roll Camera if I've whetted your appetite at all. But again, don't take my word for it. Go out there... Uh, Everybody who plays this game loves it. It's just getting rave reviews all over the place. Almost all over the place. Uh, for me and Jen, potential Game of the Year candidate, Roll Camera, B-Movie Expansion. Okay, I am going to uh, stop going cuckoo for that and start counting down games. We're coming in with our, our lowest rated game of the month was Lost Cities, The Roll and Write. Which, don't get me wrong. This is an excellent little roll-and-write game. We definitely enjoyed it. We played it as a two-player game. We played it as a four-player game. And it, it captures the setting, the theme of the original Lost Cities, but it really is its own different beast. Because what really, I think, makes the original Lost Cities one of the greatest, if not the greatest, couples card game that's ever come out is the incredible incredible tension that you feel every round when you're trying to decide where you're going to put the cards in your hand because if you don't play them to yourself and take huge risks that you'll be able to complete an expedition then you put it out in public and you might be giving your opponent exactly what they need Roll and write pretty much does away with that. We are still trying to complete expeditions, but now we're rolling dice and we're trying to get increasing um, value of dice on the different, uh, what do you call it, um, expansions or expeditions that we're going on. And it works, but the tension is gone. It's really incredibly chillaxed, especially, and this is why it comes in so low as the rating, as a two-player game. As a two-player game, there are um, enough opportunities, uh, because the game tends to go longer, for players to pretty much do anything they want. And it's just, it's a, it's a race. There's several different simultaneous races going on to be the first to cross bridges on each expansion. Um, but it's... It, it, you definitely, if you're getting into this game, you want to play it the, the highest player count you can because um, the game is at its most interesting when it's not your turn. Because this is one of those roll and writes where um, whoever's the lead player rolls the dice and um, you know takes some for themselves and then leaves the rest for everybody else. And that's when the greatest risk of, oh, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Of these dice that are left behind... I'm not sure which one I should take because they're all kinds of risky. Maybe, and this is actually the most brilliant thing about the game, maybe I should pass and just not take any dice. This game doesn't have dice re-roll mitigation like a lot of games. Instead, it says, oh, if you don't like the roll, you can just ignore it. And uh, the uh, actually, the interesting thing is you might think, oh, well, that's some kind of penalty. You're actually rewarded for ignoring because every time you say, I'm going to pass on taking any dice this round, you fill up a passing track. And the higher you go on that track, the more points you get. 
until you pass on dice the eighth time. And then at that point, everything comes crashing down and you lose all the points you would have gotten. That's a very, very cool idea. And it's a cool idea that works at the higher player counts. This comes in at my lowest of the month because as a two-player game, um, there there is just so much opportunity to do whatever you want. You don't feel any tension at all, really. Uh, when I play as a four-player game, I was definitely much more invested. I was much more worried about whether I was going to be able to complete something that I started. So um, at a higher player count, this would rank higher. But as a two-player game, Lost Cities Rolling Right comes in at number 14 of the month. Then we've got number 13, Lost Explorers. More Lost. Uh, lost Expeditions before, now Lost Explorers who have gone on a Lost Expedition. This is a very interesting game from Cedric Chabousy, the designer of one of the great all-time um, hand management, uh, deck building style games, Lewis and Clark. This game is interesting in that we are, uh, we, it's a worker placement game, where we're basically sending our workers to locations around the world, trying to get them in a position to complete archaeological missions. But to do that, we need vehicles. So, there's two types of places you can send your workers. Either to the archive, where you can get, dig up these two-sided chips. On one side of the chip is the vehicle you might need. But when you collect these chips from the archive, you either take them as the vehicle, or you risk a little bit and flip them over to find out what mission is on the other side. Because now you've signed up for a mission, and it's a mission that you have one less vehicle for. Because, hey, if, if you took a, a car, uh, which was the yellow chip, you know that if you flip it over, it's going to be a mission that you're accepting that needs a lot of cars. And you just got rid of a car to take this mission. So that's a really interesting element. And the coolest thing about this game is once you've got the missions you want to do, and once you've got the vehicles that will let you get your um, explorers out into the correct spots on the world, you can complete the missions. Every time you send an explorer out to the world, you have to show, look, I've got all the vehicles I need, and you give up one of them. You jettison one of them. And then every time you complete a mission, you show, look, I've got all the explorers where I need them to be, and again, you jettison one of them. So there's this element of you get to hold on to half or two-thirds of all the stuff you committed to a mission, and that means you'll be able to use them on a future mission if you can chain your missions together smartly. Which gets back to that whole central idea of when I'm accepting a mission, is it safe for me to take this mission? Or is this going to be a mission that doesn't dovetail with anything else I'm doing? Maybe it is, and I need to take it anyway, because you're also incentivized to take a wide variety of missions. So that's where the real crux of the game, that's where the decisions come from. Deciding what missions are you going to gamble on taking that you will be able to combo with your existing missions while also worrying about the fact that, hey, I've got people out in the city, um, I've got this uh, particular person in South America, that's great, it's going to fix three of my missions, and then some other player comes along and bumps you out of South America. So you've always got to watch out for that too. It's a sharp game, plays really fast, um, you know, a nice little worker placement game, like Lost Expedition. My only problem, why it comes in so low, is as a two-player game, the tension is gone. I haven't played this at higher player counts. I'd really like to. What they do is for fewer, um, for the lower, for two and three players, they cut off some of the cities that are on the board, and suddenly it just makes it a lot easier to complete missions. And you're just going to get stuff done without worrying too much about, oh, should I commit to this? Yeah, 
I'm not too worried about it. I'm going to be able to get it done because, hey, half the cities on the map I can completely ignore. They did that to tighten up the board. It was the right thing to do. But, like I said, it just kind of robs the game of a little bit. I talk about this more in the final thoughts for the original run-through. And again, I think it's a, a sharp game. Uh, it's got a great presentation where the box is actually brought in, although I do give some pro tips in my final thoughts for how to play the game well um, with, uh, you know, dealing with... There are there were a couple little shortcomings with the production of the game also. But overall, had a good time. Would love to play it someday at a higher player count. But as a two-player game, um, Lost Explorers was my number 13 of the month. Okay, then we've got number 12. Gods Love Dinosaurs, which is certainly a very descriptive and very odd title for a game. In this world, this primordial tile laying game, every round uh, you're going to draft a, uh, a domino tile, basically a hexadomino tile, add it to your little landscape that you are making where you are watching the drama of nature play out in front of you. Because every tile brings new creatures into your um, your, your your biome. And um, they could be prey, you know, at the bottom of the food chain, or they could be predators in the middle of the food chain, or um, you know, also, you are trying to develop more dinosaurs, because they're at the top of the food chain, and like the game says, gods love dinosaurs. We play gods shaping the world to make dinosaurs succeed. But dinosaurs to succeed, they need to eat predators. And for predators to succeed, so they can get eaten, they need to have prey. And for prey to succeed, they need land to expand. And um, it's all these three things that you are constantly trying to juggle and balance. Right, how, what tile am I going to take? Where am I going to put it? Is it going to give my prey more land to expand? Is it going to give my predators uh, locations that they can actually go hunt? Is it going to give my dinosaurs places where they can go and hatch eggs? Um, and every once in a while, there will be a dinosaur hunt. And if you have not got enough critters out there in the world, your dinosaurs will literally starve and die, and you're losing points. So this game does a really great job in very simple rules. This is a simple tile layer. Every round, take a tile, put it somewhere, put a critter on that, and then every once in a while, the critters either breed and multiply, or they hunt. And um, try to do it in such a way that dinosaurs always have a delicious big meal of stuff so that they can thrive and continue to grow. Uh, and and uh, yeah, we liked it a lot. Again, as a two-player game, we didn't feel much uh, pressure. Uh, when, it, when it boils right down to it. I mean, it was almost because, you know, a half of this game is drafting and looking for the right tiles to grab at the right time to expand, to give you the animal you need for peak breeding or hunting or whatever. And there were so many tiles available as a two-player game. Um, what is it? I think uh, five of the 15 tiles are there. So there's still, at any given time, upwards of 10 tiles. There is always enough for us to grab. And we never really felt like, oh my gosh, this is a hard choice. In fact, we often felt like as a two-player game, oh my gosh, yeah, I'm going to do this, and I know you're going to do that, because that's the best thing you could possibly do, and then I'm going to do that, and then that's going to trigger a hunt. And it almost felt kind of like the, as a two-player game, there was a fait accompli. I mean, I generally don't tend to work out several turns in advance, but in this game, I felt like a chess wizard, because I could do it. Okay, I know if I do that, you're going to do that, which means I'm going to do that, which means you're going to do that, and I can see how it's going to play out. This game, for two players, I would have loved to see something like I don't know, special powers or events or something like that to put a little bit more surprise. Or alternatively, I think this game would work a lot better, again, at higher player counts, where you have more players pursuing their own agendas and it's a little bit trickier to game out exactly how things are going to play. We really thought it was very, very clever. I would love, once again, uh, to play it at a higher player count. But as a two-player game, Gods Love Dinosaurs comes in at my number 12 of the month.
Okay, then we've got number 11, crack the code. Now, this is basically, I've heard some people refer to this as Hanabi meets Mastermind or something like that. Uh, because, uh, much like Hanabi, everybody's got uh, stuff they have to manipulate in front of them that they cannot see. In this game, it's a bunch of rubber marbles, um, which you are trying to organize into a specific pattern that you can see. But I have no idea what marbles I've got that are hidden behind this. But what I can see is everybody else's marbles. Everybody else's code they're crying to crack. And every round, when it's my turn, there's, um, you know, depending on the number of players, there's a certain number of cards available. I have to play one of those cards to maneuver or manipulate those marbles. To take marble out of one person's, um, you know, tray and move it to another's. Or take it from somebody's and move it to mine. Or remove one from mine and send it out somewhere else. Now, how can you do that? How can you remove something uh, smartly if you don't know what it is? That's the crux of the game. This is, like Hanabi, a, uh, uh, an imperfect communication game. We cannot talk about the marbles. But we can still um, communicate to our teammates through our actions. If I see, hey, you could have um, done a route, and I could see, oh my gosh, that would be perfect. You'd actually finish somebody's thing. But you didn't do that. Instead, you took something from mine, and you put it in a place it doesn't even need to be. Why did you do that? Oh, I see why you did that. Because if you took that, that meant my remaining marbles have probably now clacked together, and that's actually finished one of the elements of my code. Because there's no other reason you would have done this. But I can't confirm that. You can't say you did that. So we have to intuit what's going on based on the actions of our teammates. And that's just fun. I played this this month as a two-player game with my wife, as a four-player game, and interestingly, as a solo game. I did a run-through of it as a solo. Normally, these kind of games don't allow for solo play. And it's really sharp. It's very fun. It has, I think, an 18-chapter campaign where the game gets progressively more and more complex, and it introduces more and more elements, um, like other types of marbles that break the rules and sorts of, all sorts of things. So, it was good. Why is it coming at number 11? It's the same thing. Two-player is so easy because in a two-player game, there are still four players worth of trays and players, uh, you know, me and you, when we're playing together, we are allowed to speak openly about all the stuff we can see and that really robs the game of a lot of challenge. I mean, Jen and I found we were able to blow through it um, without uh, breaking a sweat, really. Although when we played with a four-player game, oh, then things got interesting. Then things got challenging because you really just have to trust your teammates. You know that they know what they're doing and they realize if you're doing that, you have to be telling me this. But maybe they just didn't see the other thing I see. That's the brilliance of the game and it's very, very sharp. The solo game is actually really, really cool too. A uh, nice little uh, puzzle um, where you, you don't have that, you have perfect, you know exactly what's going to happen, but. Um, there's this evil hacker that is slowly building up and um, does not activate, does not mess up with your plans until you choose to make it happen, which means you could actually make the uh, evil hacker work for you if you can manipulate things the correct way. You can watch my run through to see how that works. It was really sharp. Um, I definitely enjoyed it. I think I would enjoy it more if we played in the most hardcore rule, which is a variant, the rules say, where no one is allowed to talk at all. And then you have to 100%. I think even as a two-player game, that would raise the difficulty um, enough to where it's a big challenge for me and Jen. But Jen likes to talk. So um, I did not have a partner who would really let me explore that part of the game. But I can say, as a higher player count, 
I really enjoyed it quite a bit. And it was a fun two-player game, too. It's certainly um, not as heavy or challenging as a game like Hanabi. This is kind of a nice introduction to these sorts of imperfect communication games where everybody has to work through stuff. And the little rubber balls are marbles. They're not marbles. They're little rubber balls. We're fun, too. Um, uh, you know, uh, nice, quick, fast-playing little game. Again, better at higher player count. And unless you're willing to play at the most hardcore mode, which is total and complete silence. My number 11 of the month. Crack the code. Okay, then we go on to number 10 of the month. Spy Connection. So this is from uh, Matt Dunsden and... Oh, that's going to drive me nuts. Oh, Brett Gilbert. Brett Gilbert and Matt Dunstan. One of my favorite design duos ever since they uh, did Elysium back there. I had to... Uh, uh, check their name, do a name check form. This is a route building game um, that is interesting. There's been a lot of route building games over the year. I mean, you know, Ticket to Ride, of course, is a route building game where we're trying to make, you know, a route of all these trains all over the place. Imagine a Ticket to Ride that is spy-themed. We're traveling all over Cold War Europe, trying to complete missions by moving our master agent from one city to another and marking our progress. And we do this, um, kind of like a Ticket to Ride sort of way. Instead of putting a bunch of trains out to create all these routes, we're putting out these little discs that represent our agents that are maintaining safe houses in countries all around uh, Europe and whatnot. Here's the interesting thing. Um, we only have a finite number of those agents. And when we run out of those agents and find, oh, I just need to get from Berlin to Moscow, and I need three more agents to do it, I don't have any more agents, what you have to start doing is you have to start deconstructing your network. Um, you're constantly um, ripping your network apart, saying, oh, you know what? I don't need to go to Athens anymore. I, I, I did my mission down there. It's done. I'm going to pull those agents out so that I can now extend from Berlin to Moscow and complete this new mission. And that's great. And wouldn't you know, your next mission takes you right back to Athens. Like, ah! Um, so you can see the next four missions that are on display. I mean, they cost agents to get. And of course, those are agents you need to hold on to to be able to build your network. So this game is really interesting. Um, I mean, I've played a lot of route building games over the years, and I can't really think of any where you spend an equal amount of time ripping your routes apart and constantly rebuilding them. Um, it's almost like a game of snake. Uh, you know, the snake's always moving forward, and the tail is always disappearing behind it. Uh, and it is really sharp. I liked it a lot. Once again, uh, this month, uh, we actually went and played games at a friend's house. So we got to play this as a two- and a four-player game. I think it works wonderfully both ways, actually. But, again, I do enjoy it more as a four-player game because there's going to be more opportunity for players to get in each other's way. There is still a, a fair amount of incidental blocking. Oh, you just went down to Madrid. That's where I needed to go. Now I have to pay double to get down there. But at a higher player count where you're really, um, you know, fighting tooth and nail to hold on to stuff and saying, oh, you know, I, no matter what, I'm never going to let this route go because it's really central and everybody else is having to pay double to get through here. But I just need one more chip. If I just take one of them out, maybe I will. But then, boom, the route collapses and you're off in a new direction and it really forces you to think in a very different way. Um, you know, you can't hold on to stuff. And I really enjoyed it quite a bit. Our number 10 of the month, Spy Connection. Then we go on to number 9, Whirling Witchcraft. Now this game, this might be the most funky far out game we played this month. It's, at first glance, it doesn't really seem all that unusual. We're witches brewing potions and we need lots of, uh, what do you call it, ingredients. You know, toadstools and spider legs and stuff like that to make our potions. And every round we are going to play one card to our... Grimoire, I guess. And um, this represents an additional 
element of an engine I've got. Uh, you know, if I play a card that says, hey, I can convert frogs into um, mushrooms, then that's really great because I've already played a card on a previous round that says I need mushrooms to do this other thing. So you're trying to build an engine where you can um, put in resources and convert them to other resources. And you know, there's a lot of games like this. And your engine gets bigger over time. You find interesting ways to, oh, these cards will combo really well together. Some of the cards you can program so that they work in different directions and all that. That was all very, very nice. Also, everybody gets a really cool, unique, witchy player power as part of setup that really um, you know, gets you pushing a different direction. And then on top of that, um, the cards you play, not only do they give you new elements of your engine, but they also give you one-off opportunities to do special arcane actions like uh, fill up your potion or grab stuff you need even though if you didn't generate and stuff like that so that's all pretty straightforward and oh and i should say i forgot it's a card drafting game you've got a hand of cards you're going to play one you give the rest to your neighbor get some more and you keep doing this building a bigger and bigger engine here's where it gets crazy when my engine at the end of every round produces and i try to produce as much stuff as i can converting a few things into a lot of things with a smartly developed engine i put all that stuff in my cauldron and then i give it to you i don't produce this stuff for myself i produce it for my neighbor and then you take that cauldron full of three or five or ten or twelve cubes of all the stuff i make and you've got to find room for it in your workshop and if you can't, if I've given you too much stuff and you can't store it, that's how I score points. I score points in this game by killing you with kindness. And I love it. It's so far out because you can see, oh wow, I've made an engine that makes lots of spider legs. And you know, I'm going to give you a lot, I'm going to give you eight spider legs this round. And you're like, ah, what am I going to do? I need to pivot my engine so it will consume all of those spider legs so you don't get overloaded. Because if you get overloaded, I then get to score points off of the spider legs you didn't have room for. It's you, you need to see this in action. And you know, my two-player run-through, I think, does a pretty good job. I actually play through an entire game from start to finish. So you can see how things evolve and escalate really, really quickly in surprising ways. It's far out. This is definitely another game that works better with more players because you're interested. The um, When you give away your cauldron, you give that to the player to your right. But when, you, when you're done with your cards, you give those to the player to your left. So you're really kind of involved in both directions. In a two-player game, there's just one other player. And so the game actually becomes much more strategic because I know, hey, you know what? I'm giving you these three cards. I'm going to get two of those back eventually because I'm the only other player. And that works fine, but I did find myself enjoying it more um, with more stuff fed in, more unpredictability. But regardless, even as a two-player game, it was really, really sharp. My number nine of the month, Whirling Witchcraft. All right. Then we go on to number eight, Korra. Rise of an Empire, which was actually a paid run-through I did for publisher Yellow Games. And um, this was another one of Jen's absolute favorites. She loved this game. And I really dug it a lot, too. We are definitely getting into Keeper territory here in the, uh, in the roundup. Um, this is an ancient civilization building game. We are tracking the rise of ancient Grecian empires. And it's uh, there's a lot of stuff going on. At its heart, uh, every round, we are going to roll a couple of dice. These two dice represent the demand, or the support we get from our citizenry. Um, and this is a game, now this isn't always a good thing. 
this is a game where the higher value the die, the better. Because if you can roll a couple of sixes, that means your citizens will be happy with anything you do. Whereas if you roll really low, if you roll like a one and a two, that means you're going to be stuck at the lower end actions like philosophy and legislation or culture or stuff like that. You can't do the really high level things like, you know, politics or military or development. You need high value dice for those. Um, so every round you're going to roll. But don't feel bad if you rolled low because um, the low level actions you get to do, what those translate in, in, usually into a bunch of different things. Those are the ones that let you gather stuff that will help you later. Whereas the high value things are that later moment when you use all the stuff you've gathered. So if you're rolling low, you're getting more population. Population is a great way to be able to manipulate the dice. You can spend population to get more support from people. Uh, it's very much like, oh, I didn't really like what I rolled uh, in Castles of Burgundy. I'm not going to use the die. I'm just going to get some workers that I can manipulate dice later. This has that same basic idea going on. And um, really, what makes this special, what makes this memorable is, I mean, there are, what are there? There's six, seven different types of actions you can do every round, depending on what the dice say you can do, unless you override them because you've got citizenry you can spend because you've earned those on previous rounds. But um, one of the big things you're trying to focus on, you're trying to focus on a lot of stuff. You're trying to launch military campaigns to, um, you know, explore the world and get all kinds of resources. That way, you are trying to invest in your city to unlock cool special powers that are unique to you. This is a very asymmetric game. Athens plays very different than Sparta. Sparta definitely focuses on war. Athens focuses on trade, if I recall correctly. You're also engaging in trade, being able to convert stuff and whatnot, and even unlock a third die. So you're rolling three dice every round instead of two, if you really focus on that. But probably the most important thing is laws. The game comes with a big deck of law cards. And uh, every every time that you can do a politics action, if you've earned the resources you need to put these cards into play, they're worth points, but they give a wide variety of game-changing abilities. that are, you know, in-game score point coin stuff, special one-off things, or special recurring powers that will make other actions more valuable and whatnot. The laws really make this come to life. Also, every round, there's a new event you're going to have to deal with. And the beautiful thing is these events um, are some of the best events I've seen done. Often, I'm not a fan of events in games because they really favor one player over another. The thing about the events in this game is you know they favor military. They're designed. Um, so you know, hey, you know what? If I'm really not going to focus on military, I'm going to focus on trade, or I'm going to focus on economy because I need money, then I'm probably not going to do very well in the events, and other players are probably going to pull ahead of me. But I know that. And on top of that, even with that knowledge, there's more because you see the event at the beginning of a round, and you don't deal with it until the end of the round, nation style. So that's fantastic, too. The events are done wonderfully. The card play is done fantastically. This is a wonderful civilization game. And uh, it's most interesting because it's, um, it's nowhere near as heavy or as long. This is a game you're going to get done in under an hour. And you'll really get a wonderful civ-building style experience without having to spend a through-the-ages amount of time doing it. I really like everything about the game. If I had any complaints, and I do have a couple of minor ones, I rated a bit lower than my wife, Jen. I would have liked to see more multi-use stuff. That, hey, if I don't need this sieve that I'm earning, can I, can, can I convert them into money? If I don't need um, this knowledge I've gotten, can I convert it into citizenry? A little bit more, just a little bit more, turning some stuff into multi-use stuff would have really elevated the game quite a bit. I understand why they don't do it, because they're trying to keep this. This is like a Gateway Plus game. This is a game that if you've got somebody playing Carcassonne, and, you're, and you think they're ready for another game, and you think they might like ancient civilization building, 
You wouldn't send them to Through the Ages or Nations, but you could send them to Korra as a great next step. Um, and you would still have a fun time playing it yourself. It's a really great uh, Civ game. It's my number eight of the month, Korra, Rise of an Empire. Then we've got number seven, Flamecraft, which I believe is still on Kickstarter right now. Uh, I did a paid preview for it, and this is a very cool worker placement game. And I, if I'm playing a worker placement game, it's got to do something really interesting, because I've been playing worker placement games for a decade now, it feels like. This one does something very cool and interesting. It's not the first to do this, but I don't think I've seen another game that pushes the idea this hard of the worker placement spots that you can go to changing and growing and evolving over the course of the game. Because in this game, it's a little village full of artisanal dragons who make all kinds of goods. Um, and you, you've got your one very cool dragon meeple that you can send out to the... Uh, or if you get the deluxe version, you can actually get a little miniature. But the, the even the basic version of this game, you don't have to pay double to get the deluxe version. The basic version is really awesome looking too with just neat, cool, little, fun little meeples. Anyway though, you, you send your um, dragon out to a shop knowing that, okay, this is a shop that generates food or this is a shop that generates potions or whatever. I know I'm going to generate that. But in addition to that, you have a handful of artisanal dragons that um, after you've done the action, or actually before you do the action, you'll be able to say, hey, um, why don't you start working over here, dragon? The dragon says, this sounds like a good place to work. And you have just changed the fundamental nature of this worker placement spot. And it's going to stay changed for the rest of the game. And over the course of the game, um, each one of these worker placement spots can get filled with three additional actions they can do. And these actions can really range. They can really do interesting combo stuff between them. And I mean, the game starts out really simple. But by the end, you've got all these worker placement spots full of like you know anywhere from two to four actions you can do um and trying to figure out where you're going to go just gets deeper and richer and more compelling and more satisfying you start out with simple actions by the end of the game you're doing big super actions and you know it, it doesn't just stop i mean there were six worker placement spots that can be upgraded at the beginning of the game by the end of the game there might be eight or ten or twelve of them depending on how the city has evolved or turned from a little town into an actual city it's got great presentation, whether you get the deluxe version or the regular edition. Uh, it's got really solid gameplay. It's a very, very sharp game. My number seven of the month, Flamecraft. Okay, and we got number six of the month, Islands in the Mist. This is from Volker Schachtella, designer who really turned my eye years ago when he put out Queen's Architect, which is such a brilliant game. And I've been waiting for a follow-up for years. And I finally got, although I only just found out, this game has actually been out since 2019, but it finally got an English release now, and I'm really happy about it, uh, because it's a lot of fun. It's a very cool, much lighter than Queen's Architect, but still a puzzly, interesting game that's quite very, very unique, which Volker is definitely all about. In this game, we are hot air balloonists flying over a misty island trying to explore and map it to score points. And every round, the first thing that happens is, if I'm the lead player... You, the player to my right, roll two dice. One that says which way the wind is going to blow, and one that says a special bonus that everybody is going to get. And you have the opportunity to re-roll both of those dice or leave them as they are. Or re-roll one and leave the other as it is. And, um, and then everybody deals that. Everybody deals with the wind that you've rolled. Everybody deals with the bonus that you've rolled. And then, with that in mind, we do our best to literally um, you know, go with the flow, ride the wind, to try to get to new areas of our island to basically do tile laying. Uh, because we're trying to create patterns of tiles that go from the outer edges of the island to the center of the island to score big, big combinatorial points. And it is a blast. Everybody has an energy meter. And if you want to spend energy, you can fight against the wind and go in different directions. 
which you definitely need to do, but and that can cause real problems. Um, you know, and, and, and so often you're like, oh, okay, we're going southeast. I really needed to go north. But you know what? If I just let this go, I'm going to get over here. And then next round, if um, you know, next round, I, if I'm the one who's actually going to be rolling the dice, I could maybe re-roll and get that north and get over there. I think I'm going to wait. Or nope, nope, nope. Actually, I'm only going to have to burn four energy to about face so I can go the one space north I need to go. I'm going to do that right now. And those decisions on the surface are simple. But um, as the game goes on and your island gets tighter and tighter because you're trying to get to areas that you haven't explored yet. Once you've explored most of the island, you have to be much more precise into how you steer your balloon. In the early game, hey, wherever I'm going, I'm going to be able to probably lay some tiles down. But near the end of the game, it gets much tougher, and you really have to work hard to fight against the winds or make them work your way. And it is sharp. In part because it comes with, I think, three different modules you can turn on. We played with all of them turned on. So there's this sky harbor that you can literally leave the island and float away and get, um, you know, get a lot more control over tiles. There's these special bonus tiles that unlock all kinds of special powers if you discover those things. And across the board, it is a blast. And all interestingly, if you take those modules out, I think this is a pretty good gateway game, too. I could imagine playing this with complete board game novices. They would very quickly understand and be able to make interesting strategical decisions uh, based on how the wind blows them around. Um, I guess the end scoring is a little complex, but uh, there's really good pictures in the, uh, in the book that kind of lay it all out. I was very impressed by this. I'm not surprised I was impressed because I was really impressed by uh, Queen's Architect. Like I said, this is not as big and heavy as complex, but it is still a blast. Really enjoyed it. My number six of the month, Islands in the Mist. Well done, Volker. Okay, let's talk about number five, Sub Astral. Uh, now, this is a sequel from to a game I covered, oh, geez, last year maybe? Was it? Um... From uh, Matt Riddle and Ben Pinchback, the designers of Fleet, and many other games beside, I'm trying to remember the name of the prequel. Stellar. Stellar was a card game about you know charting the nighttime sky with your telescope and making really tough, agonizing card drafting decisions to do it. Subastral takes part of the same idea, but instead of charting the nighttime sky, we're actually cataloging the world around us and trying to score points for bigger and bigger biomes that we are um, uh, recording in our journals. And the interesting thing about this game is you usually have a hand of cards, you know, uh, some cards. You're going to play one of the cards. The cards are numbered one through six. You'll play a card to the matching cloud. And then that card will stay there, which means some other player could grab it later. Think Lost Cities, right? Every time I play a card out, I'm worried, am I giving you the card you need? Because this is a two-player Battle of Wits style game. But after I put the card out, say I put a, a number four card in the number four cloud. That means I could pick a cloud to the left or to the right. And um, if I pick one to the left, that means I could take all the cards that have built up in that and add them to my hand, so I'll be able to have cards I can play later. If I pick a cloud to the right, I take all the t uh, all the cards that are in that cloud, and I score them. And uh, this game has some very interesting, really clever, two different levels, layers of set collection that are insidiously challenging and really require very smart play to deal with. And so throughout the game, you're constantly dealing with the, uh, you know, that, that Lost Cities. Oh my gosh, I know you want this six. If I put this six out there, I know you're going to take it because that gets you exactly what you need. 
need. But it's the only card I've got to play. If I play this other one, um, then I'm not going to be able to... You know, I mean, you're setting yourself up. You're setting your opponent up. But um, constantly trying to decide, what am I going to take into my hand? I mean, you could just run out of cards. If you completely play all your cards and do nothing but score stuff, then you've got the worst thing, which is you have to spend an entire turn doing nothing but drawing one card blind from the deck. But, I mean, you know, that can give you the win if you do that at the right time. Because, hey, yo, I could play this too, but all it's going to do is let me get a couple of cards to add to my hand. But if I could instead give up that too, go completely empty, and get these four cards over here, those might win me the game. And so it's full from start to finish with really fun, challenging, agonizing, compromise-laden decisions. Like Stellar Report. I would say this isn't quite as crunchy as Stellar. It's a little bit more relaxed. And maybe my wife actually likes it better because of that. I think I like Stellar more because it really is torturous in the best way. But Subastral is really, really good as well. Um, and uh, not for nothing, it's gorgeous looking. Um, you know, all the different biomes you're playing throughout the game. I really, uh, you know, and Jen loves it. Oh, and another thing too, it's a fast game. This is a very thinky and very fast filler that you're going to get done in 15 minutes once you've got it and immediately say, let's play again right now and let's best of three kind of a thing, at least if you're me, because I will likely um, lose more often than I win. But I'll have a great time playing my number five of the month, Subastral. Okay, number four is another paid Kickstarter preview. Verdant is the latest game from, um, well, a designer powerhouse, really. A super team of folks have come together for this uh, Kickstarter game. And uh, it's the designer of Calico, the, uh, his co-designer from um, Overboss, and the two of them working with the, uh, the trio of designers behind Point Salad and uh, Truffle Shuffle. These five designers have made an amazing card drafting game that's about two things. Interior design, because you're trying to make the best house you can, but also caring and feeding of plants. Because every round, you've got a tough, tough choice to make. You're taking one token from a, a selection of four tokens that could be um, nurturing, like fertilizer or watering cans to make the plants grow, uh, or furniture to put in your house and try to score points that way. But whichever token you take, you also must take a card above or below it. And this is one of those entwined drafting games where I really want that token that's in the third slot, but I want that room that's in the first slot, and I can't have both. If I take, if I want to get that room, I'm getting a token that I have useless. If I um, take that token I want, I'll get a plant that's okay, but is it actually going to work for me? I don't know. And from start to finish, you're having to deal with those tough choices. But that's only half the tough choice. How you actually build this house, because you have to do it checkerboard. Two rooms can never be next to each other. Two plants can never be next to each other. So as the house gets bigger and more fold out, it gets tougher and tougher to get the right cards into the right slot. And it's just another really fun, compelling game. And I think one of the things I really enjoy most about it, there have been actually a bunch of uh, plant, flower, nurturing style games over the last year or so. This is the only one, I think I've played them all, that really focuses on lighting. Um, how important it is to have the right lighting conditions for the plants. Um, because the interesting thing is, the plants score points based on the rooms they're adjacent to. The rooms score points based on the plants they're adjacent to in a completely different way. So it's almost like you're playing two different tile lane games that have been fused together into one and have become this interesting mishmash of stuff. You've got tough drafting, you've got tough tile lane, or in this case, card laying um, decisions, and it is fantastic. 
fantastic. Like I said, this is a paid Kickstarter preview I did, but oh my gosh, Jen and I absolutely adored my number four of the month, Verdant. Okay, then we go on to number three, Solar Sphere. Now, this was another paid Kickstarter preview, and it is great. Um, one of the best games I've played of the month. Obviously, it's my number three. And this is a worker placement game with dice. Every round, you've got three dice you're going to roll that represent your ships that can fly around this particular system that we've come to that are that's full of, I think, nine different planets. Uh, each one of the planets is a worker placement spot for your dice. So you're, you're going to take turns rolling your dice and then sending them out to the planets to harvest resources, to um, build stuff. And all, ultimately, what we're trying to do is build the solar sphere, which is a Dyson sphere around the star of this solar system. And this is one of the main ways you can score points, is getting all the resources you need from the various planets, to go build the solar sphere and um, you know put your mark on it and contribute stuff. Here's the thing, though. When you roll those dice, if you get a 1 and a 3 and a 6, or a two sixes and a 4 or whatever, that's, those are the individual captains of your ship saying, uh, this is what we want to do. We want to go to slot 6 or slot 4, or we want to go to the planet where only even-numbered uh, dice can go, or the one where odd-numbered dice can go. And, of course... Of course, your um, ship captains are not always going to want to go where you want them to go, which is super painful, which is why, in a, I mentioned this already once in this roundup, in a Castles of Burgundy-esque uh, manner, you have a resource, they're called drones in this game, that you can spend to change those dice and do whatever you want. So, oh, I really needed a five. Okay, I'll spend a couple of drones and turn this three into a five. I can get to planet number five and get the crystals I needed to help fight off the resistance fighters, because that's really what I wanted to focus on. I had to sacrifice a couple of drones. Here's the thing, though. Um, those drones are hugely important because you use them for a lot more than just dice mitigation. Those drones are the things you actually deploy to fight the resistance fighters. You can't, if you don't have drones on hand to be able to go fight, it doesn't matter if you get the crystal you need. Um, and if you use all your drones to get the dice you need, you're not going to fight. You need to use those drones to actually, th those are the superstructure of the Dyson Sphere itself. Um, you use these drones all over the place for all kinds of things. And so, it's a really interesting dilemma. Okay, I could get I could make this die be what it needs to be. And it's only going to cost me one drone. But that drone might be the absolutely crucial drone I need. It's the last drone I'll have at the end of the round and without it I won't be able to build. Now here's the thing though. There are other things you can do because this is a dice rolling game and it's always a question in uh you know uh, games where you roll dice and then you use them for various and sundry effects. Um, is, a, or, or, is it good to roll low or high? I talked earlier about a game where you want to roll high because you're really hurting if you roll low. In this game, there are no bad rolls. Because if you l roll low, which means you're not going to make your crews work as hard, um, because that means you can go to the easier planets, and maybe you want to go there, maybe you don't, but since the, cr uh, the crew isn't going to work as hard, their morale increases. And um, this is like a whole separate thing you keep track of. And you can spend their morale to trigger bonus actions to get the stuff that you didn't get elsewhere, um, if you did not roll what you needed. And it works so well. I mean, I know it may not sound like what I'm describing here is reinventing the wheel in any way, shape, or form. I mean, I've seen different variations of all the stuff Solar Sphere does in other games, but I have rarely seen it come together so well, so satisfyingly, so with such clockwork precision, because 
everything feeds off of everything else. Those high numbers, uh, higher value dice and some of the worker placement slots gives you a lot of flexibility about what you want to do. Lower value dice gives you the morale that gives you a lot of flexibility about what you want to do. If you need more flexibility, you've always got those drones that will let you do what you want to do. But if you don't have the drones, which are your fundamental um, building block, you can't do what you want to do. And it's all this push and pull, every decision is like, what do I sacrifice to do this? Do I sacrifice to do that? On top of that, there's a whole other element of the game. You can recruit new crew members, um, all kinds of really cool special powers that will really change the game up from game to game and let you focus on different things. And then driving all of it is a really well-integrated set collection game. Because no matter what you do, whether you're building the Dyson Sphere or whether you're fighting the Resistance or whether you are recruiting more crew, all of these um, actions will get you in favor with different alien factions. And if you can do set collection of that, you can score big points there as well. The game is absolutely brilliant. Um, I think it'll be going live on September 7th. You'll be able to check out my my uh, run-through then, the preview I did, so you can see just how wonderfully elegant it is. It feels very Feldy to me. It, this feels like something that um, you know Feld might have done. Um, and, I, and to me, that is about the highest compliment you can give to a game, which is why it's my number three of the month, Solar Sphere. Okay, now we're almost done, folks. Let's talk about number two. Riverside. So, this is a new Roll and Write, and yes, it's another Roll and Write. Sorry, I love Roll and Writes. I know there's some people who have fatigue for Roll and Writes. Not this guy who's got two thumbs and loves Roll and Writes. This guy right here. And Riverside is a phenomenal one. It is fantastic. It is one of the better ones I've played in quite a while. And I wasn't really surprised by that because it's co-designed by Elis, or Eilis Vinson, who designed one of my favorite Roll and Writes of all time, Avenue. Uh, this one he did with his uh, brother, um, Asmund, if I recall correctly instead of his normal design partner, Kristen Osby. But um, Riverside is a game where we are running a uh, tourist boat, traveling down a river. It kind of feels like we're um, you know, traveling through fjords, stopping at different villages, and trying to show all the tourists um, you know, what they've come, whether they want to see polar bears or reindeers or whether they want you know, authentic local ales or whether they want to go fishing or whatever. And here's the thing. At the beginning of every round, we're going to roll dice. Each one of the different colored dice represents a different type of tourist. And everybody is going to... This is a bingo-style game. After the dice are rolled, everybody gets to pick one die, maybe two dice, that um, represents more tourists they're going to put on their excursion boats. And once you get enough tourists on an excursion boat, you can send them out to the different villages. But you can only send them so far unless you're willing to spend resources to really get going. And the, the lion's share of the points you will get in this game is from being able to properly time these excursions to the different villages, which are, you know, are randomly laid out as part of setup. You get a random board where, oh, the really best reindeer village is literally the first village we stop at. And the worst one is near the end of the trip. And here's the thing. If I'm going to send um, my reindeer-loving uh, uh, tourists to that village, I need to pack enough of them on to, to sell tickets. The more tickets I sell, the more I can score off that really great reindeer um, village. And if I could score a bit of really big reindeer score right from the get-go, that's great. But the problem is... If I want to do another reindeer excursion afterwards, my tourists will demand something even better. And that's where the pressure and the tension comes in. Um, because if, you know, if I score... 
15 points off my first reindeer excursion. My next one has to be worth 16 points or more, which means I either have to get more tickets and book, book more of them or get my same number of ones to a better village. But what if the better village is way in the rearview mirror? Well, the nice thing is, um, ultimately over the course of this game, like I said, I think of this as a fjord. You're going to go all the way to the end of the canyon and come back. So you can be doing a lot of long-term planning. Hey, I'll do a quick little excursion right now. It's not going to score me any points because I know I'll do the really big one on the way back through this river and near the end of the game. But what will inevitably happen near the end of the game as you're coming back, oh my gosh, I've got to do all these other things as well because you usually only get to do one excursion per turn. And this game usually only gives you eight or nine turns to do stuff. So there are a lot of things, a lot of push and pull. Um, But the most interesting thing about everything is the way the dice work, how it drives. Because at the beginning of the round, we've got six tourist dice, uh, these six different colors. You roll them all, and um, you take the median value. That represents the temperature uh, the day, which also represents how far the ship is going to go, which represents how which villages you can even reach. Um, the, um, the, what do you call it? The dice that are above the median, for them, the median temperature is too cold, and they will not go out. They, they just refuse, they, I mean, because it's too cold for them. Whereas the low-value dice, well, they're, they're ready to go out. They're hardy, but there's not very many of them because they're low-value dice. So if you want to grab those high-value dice that are above the median, you have to burn fuel to keep them warm, and you only have so much. So making the right decision for when to burn fuel to keep those high-value um, tourists happy or just say, you know what, I'll, I only need a couple. I'm, ready to, I'm happy for this, too, because that's going to get me another ticket, which means you know, getting two versus getting five, those or three aren't really going to help me. They're not going to get me another ticket. So which one should I take and where? It's it's great. Now here's the deal. When my run through for this goes up, um, which I think will be uh, in a couple days after this video you're watching now goes live, um, you can play with me. You do not have to take my word for why this game is so great. There will be a link um, in the show notes of my run through that will t- uh, let you download your own printable version of the player sheet and you can play along. Watch the run through once so you get an idea of how the game plays and then watch it again. I'll put in shortcuts so you can jump directly to the dice rolls so you can see if you can beat my score. I challenge you to beat my score because I actually did pretty well. Spoiler alert. Uh, but anyway, it's a great game. Uh, Iliff has done a fantastic job. And it, more than anything else, there's a lot of really great things here that are going on. This is not a lightweight one. This is not a super heavy one, but this is on the higher end of crunch and thought as to how you're going to play this game. But more importantly, it's so thematic. It is so wonderfully thematic. And to me... It serves as a a clarion call to other roll-and-write designers saying, Look, these dice can represent things. You can think of them as people. And that pulls you in. We don't have to go and show and clever everything and just go crazy abstract. It, it, It so elevates the game if you can bring the theme in. And Riverside does that better than most roll and writes out there. That's a big reason why it's my number two of the month. Okay, one more game, folks. Here we go. Game of the month. Let's make a bus route. The dice game. Yes! Another roll and write. Oh, I love roll and write so much. And this is actually a 
two-player only sequel to a wonderful flip and write that came out a few years ago from publisher Sashi and Sashi, Let's Make a Bus Route. And in that game, and in this game, players are competing um, to get the right people on their bus, uh, representing um, students and tourists and commuter work commuters and stuff like that, trying to fill your bus up with the right people, and then actually trying to make a bus route through the streets of, I forget which cities. It's not Tokyo. I mean, actually, it's a two-sided board. Oh, yeah. One side is a city, and the other side is actually a Martian city, just for fun. That's a very challenging city. Oh, making a bus route on Mars is tough. But anyway, um, we're trying to make a bus route so that we can get the uh, people in our bus to the right place at the right time to score the most points. And really, on the surface, this game is much is very similar to its predecessor, except every round we're rolling dice to determine what um, customers we get and what route we're going to draw. I like the way it works because whoever is the lead player in a given round rolls all the dice, and uh, there's six of them, and then takes three of them to um, be able to load up their, uh, their bus with, you know, three different types of commuters. And all the different commuters score differently. They, they're, they're, you know, they're fundamentally unique. And so if you're really focusing on a student strategy where you try to get into the university versus a commuter strategy where you're trying to get them to the subway station, uh, it really changes the other half of the game. Because when I, after I pick the three commuters I'm going to put on my bus, of the three remaining dice, you, my opponent, pick one of them to decide how you're going to extend your bus route. And the interesting thing about that is... We have our own private board that is full of all our, uh, you know, represents our bus. It's a public board that represents the bus route. And this is what really makes this game stand head and shoulders above most roll and rights out there. Making it, I think, one of my favorite roll and rights of all time, quite frankly. Because we really care what each other is doing on the main city map. Because once I have made a, bu- a route between these two stops, you can still do it, but you will suffer from traffic. And so... We're constantly trying to stay one step ahead of each other, um, you know, and avoid those huge traffic surcharges if we have to travel where the other player's already gone. Now, this is all exactly or very, very similar to the original Let's Make a Bus Route. And the original Let's Make a Bus Route could play with more than two. So why would I choose this? The problem is the original Let's Make a Bus Route, and I talked about this when I covered it in a roundup last year, I think, is the board was so huge that in a two-player game, traffic almost never happened. Traffic was not an issue. So so the beautiful thing about Let's Make a Bus Route, the dice game is, it's a tight, compact board where there's already congested areas where you'll get traffic if you try. So you're already trying to avoid some areas, which is going to funnel you right to where I've already been or I'm going to have to funnel where you are, and it is brilliant. The, I mean, this roll and rights are usually very hands-off. Oh, I'm in my world, you're in your world, and we just... Poke our heads up at the end and see who scored the most points. Not so in this game. This is not an aggressive game. This is, but it is a very interactive game where we are constantly racing to get the ideal routes and having to deal with it if somebody else beat us to it. And it's absolutely brilliant. I am so heavily invested in trying to figure out what it is you're trying to do and where you're trying to go. Am I safe going in a different direction? Um, or do I have to you know, really try to avoid you? Can I get to the thing before you do? It's fantastic. It's my game of the month. It is Let's Make a Bus Route the Dice Game. And as an aside, if I at all have whetted your appetite for this, or if you just like Sashi and Sashi games, um, I, I need to let you know, right now, 
uh, Let's Make a Bus Route the Dice Game is available for sale in the Board Game Geek Store. Just do a Google search for Board Game Geek Store. They've got, last I knew, around 50 copies or so. And, um, you know, because they imported a whole bunch of them. Otherwise, you've got to go to Japan and you have to pay an insane amount of international shipping unless you are in that part of the world. Um, I went on ahead and bought my own copy because a friend had lent me theirs. And it's very rare these days. I've got so many games I'm surrounded by. I generally don't go out and buy games. I just rely on whatever the publishers send me for filming. This game is so good. I went out and bought it in part because I just love supporting the Board Game Geek store because Board Game Geek is the best website um, in the entire internet and I just like supporting them. But folks, if you like Sashi and Sashi games, if you like Roll and Rights and you like something very different that feels so unique and you like really interesting two-player face-offs that aren't aggressive or violent but are just really interesting races... I, I strongly suggest checking it out um, while they've still got copies because after those are gone, you'll have to order them for international shipping and it'll double the price if you think about doing this later. But anyway, that's it, folks. That is my number one game of the month. Let's make a bus route the dice game. Okay. Phew. Wow. That was a lot. And I don't know if you noticed, I had just had some salted almonds right before filming. And I thought I had cleared my mouth out. I did not. I was choking on little bits of almond all throughout. You might have, if you watch me a little picture in picture, probably saw me picking a couple out from my teeth here and there. But I, the show had to keep going. And hopefully you've enjoyed this month's roundup. I certainly enjoyed all of these games. There was some really, really great stuff this month. But that's all in the past now. It is time to be moving forward. If you'd like to know what's going to be coming in the next four weeks from Rotto Runs Through, in addition to four more episodes of the R&R Show, which, remember, you can find that at rnr.rotto.com. Come and join me for the live. But even if you don't make the live, still watch it afterwards because we're giving away awesome stuff every week. Um, and you need to watch to find out how to enter every contest because it's always unique. Uh, you know, Check out the R&R Show. But if you want to know what games we'll be covering, um, hopefully this month, Although, you know, take it with a grain of salt, you can go to comingsoon.rado.com because at the beginning of every month, I take my best guess as to what we'll be uh, dealing with in the future. And uh, otherwise, folks, that's it. As always, thank you so much for watching. And thanks once again to the sponsor of the show, Fun Again Games. And uh, have a very, very nice day, everybody. Talk to you later. So long. Uh, bye bye